This episode is brought to you by Rewind. Rewind offers e-commerce brands a solution that protects their stores against unexpected downtime. Rewind adds an undo button to your store, continually saving every change you make and backing up the critical data which runs your business. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable and durable outdoor furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 99 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with entrepreneur, author, and fellow podcast host, Kara Golden, the founder and CEO of Hint. Founded in 2005, Hint is the fastest growing, fruit-flavored, unsweetened still water in America. Kara hosts a podcast called The Kara Golden Show and also wrote a book called Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters, which chronicles the challenges she's faced in building her business. In this episode, Kara shares with us her entrepreneurial journey from growing up in Scottsdale, Arizona as the youngest of five, to working in a toy store at 14 years old, to attending Arizona State University, to working at Time Magazine, CNN, and AOL, to coming up with the idea for Hint after realizing the negative effects that diet sodas were having on her health. She talks with us about the importance of choosing the right investors, why every founder should have their own personal attorney, and why being helpful and kind are the keys to becoming memorable. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning, or you can check us out online at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Kara. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story in building Hint. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So I was reading your awesome book called Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters. Really amazing story you have. It's like an autobiography, which the show kind of is. It's like a mini autobiography. So I like know your story. So I'm going to kind of, uh, you know, struggle through this as um, I already know the answers, I think, to a few of the questions. But for those who haven't read your amazing book yet, they should. Maybe this will be a little bit of the cliff notes to your story. Thank you. Thanks so much. So let's um, talk about your childhood a little bit. You know, where are you from originally? And can you kind of tell us about your, you know, growing up? What did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, well, I originally, originally I was, I grew up in Minneapolis uh, when I was little and uh, really, really little. And then my dad had this epiphany that he didn't want to shovel snow anymore. And so I was uh, two and a half and moved to Arizona. Uh, to Scottsdale, Arizona. My, I remember my mom going kicking and screaming. She does. She did not want to go. She had grown up in Edina, Minnesota, and was like a diehard University of Minnesota. I mean, didn't all her friends were there? And we moved to you know this place where there was nothing. I mean, it was you know, the seventies, it was, it was, um, you know, a bunch of cactuses and, and that was it. And my dad was with a company that had an office in Scottsdale that was called Armor Food Company. And he actually was a 
a brand manager and had started a brand there actually that was underneath the armor food company umbrella but they were working sort of a private label product for Safeway that was called Dinner Classics. And then Armor Food Company ended up getting acquired by ConAgra and uh, ConAgra changed the name. And my dad sort of updated, upgraded what they had built. And it went out to many more stores than Safeway, but it was called Healthy Choice, which is still today. Oh, yeah. I had those all the time, like as a kid. I feel like TV dinners was like the thing to do on a Friday or Saturday night. Watch TV, get the frozen meal out, heat it up in the microwave and enjoy. <laughs> yeah. So in the, I mean, it's funny because so many people over the years have said, oh, entrepreneurism was in your blood because of your dad. And, you know. I think working for a large company, I don't think my dad really ever thought of himself as an entrepreneur, yet he was. He was like running a little business within a large company. There were a lot of things, like he didn't go raise money. He already had space allocated to him uh, through a large company. There were a lot of differences, but I think sort of seeing his challenges working inside of large companies, just hearing his beefs or whatever you want to call it at, din at dinner, I, I sort of, I felt like I lived vicariously through that. But it's interesting, my mom hadn't been working for many years because she was raising kids. And when she moved to Arizona, she decided she was an art history major and she decided that she wanted to go into fashion, which was like totally out of left field. And so she's, I'm going to kindergarten at this point and she has a little more time to be able to go out and work. And so she decides that she's going to go into fashion and try and become a buyer. And we were like, okay. I mean, she always had a pretty good fashion sense, but really was okay with going down to the bottom again. And it, it was fascinating sort of thinking, you know, back on that because she didn't have any fears about starting over again. I mean, clearly, you know, she's, she's got five kids. She wants to have a second career, wants to do something that she's really passionate about. And she was willing to go and, and learn. And when you're starting in retail, even as a buyer, I mean, she worked many nights. And, and so the backstory and how the connection that I saw, at least with my dad was that, you know, my dad really, wanted to have a, dinner, a different alternative to Stouffer's TV dinners. He used to joke about Stouffer's TV dinners that it was like mystery meat and he wanted real food because my mom wasn't there to cook. She was following her dreams. And so both of those people had quite a bit of influence on me. Yet, you know, again, you don't sort of realize it until much later. You know, as I mentioned, growing up with five kids, um, I had a cool brother. I had two cool brothers, but I had a cool brother that was always redoing cars. And you were the youngest, you were the youngest of five. Yeah. So you really, you know, you said in your book that, um, your most dominant trait as a kid is persistence because you were the youngest and you always had to kind of fight for what you wanted. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I couldn't understand at a young age why I couldn't get a job. And for me, getting a job equated to being able to go to the mall and buy stuff. Right. Right. Like right. Was, freedom. <laughs> freedom. Right. I didn't really necessarily want the job. I just wanted the money to be able to go and buy cool clothes at the mall. And so I was always trying to figure out like how I could get a job. I babysit. I, you know, run little errands here and there. I started kids camp. Uh, when I was 12 and, um, you know, basically doing pretty much had no idea what I was doing, but it actually was a lot of fun. And then I decided I wasn't going to do it anymore. But then I, at age 14, I was, uh, I ended up getting a job at a toy store. I was sort of like Tom Hanks and, and uh, you know, that, that pretty funny movie big. It was a store that I used to go into all the time that was next door to a, a fabric store that my mom dragged me to all the time. And I was so sick of looking at fabric that one day I just wandered in. I said, I'm going to go to the toy store. And then they said, Hey, do you want a job on Sundays? Can you do the cash register? And they never asked me my age. And so, you know, I was like, sure, that'd be so fun. And then all of a sudden 
one of the stories in the book talks about how I became the buyer for this toy store that Nancy was going through a divorce. And she said, you just totally understand what kids should, what kids would want when people are coming in saying, what should I buy for my 11 year old? And I just got it. And so all of a sudden I'm going to these, I'm going to these toy fairs and understanding margins and understanding less is more like critical things that, you know, I would go back into the classroom and I was so bored in the classroom versus what I was learning in these situations, right. Where, where it was just, I mean, my brain was just constantly thinking. And I remember going home to my dad and saying, I got a job. And my dad's like, how did you get a job? You're not 16. Didn't they see, you know, your ID? And I'm like, what ID? You know, you didn't have IDs to go into school or whatever, you know, they, they are now. So it was, it was pretty funny, but yeah, I mean, I, I went to a state school um, in Arizona, which Arizona state university and wasn't too far away from our house. And, and so I went there for college. And I think when the key thing that, I learned about ASU was that, you know, I was always a really good writer and could write stories, but some of my girlfriends um, from school were in finance and I would look at their homework or hear them talking about stuff. And I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? And I felt, I felt stupid. Like I was just missing out on this whole other side of my brain that I hadn't been using. So I decided primarily because they were kind of fun and I wanted to be in some a class with them and be able to connect with them on a daily basis. I thought, oh, maybe I'll, I'll take a beginning finance class. That sounds fun. And, and like, it was really hard for me. I mean, it was it, like all of a sudden I, I felt like I was learning something new. But what I realized is that I'm in school to learn right? You shouldn't be taking classes that are so easy for you, right? That, and, and so after a while, I felt like I was making progress. And all those kind of points that I think about today are kind of what allows you to love entrepreneurship too, because every day as you're building, you're, you're really focusing on those things that are a little bit hard for you, right? Everything like you know, team building or how to manage during a pandemic or raising money or whatever those things are that, you know, are probably going to use a little different skill set than maybe what you're completely comfortable with. But as long as you start to see yourself making progress, that's really the key. Yeah. And so you went to Arizona State University and you moved over to New York to work at Time Magazine. You have some interesting stories in your book about your time at Time Magazine. You know, I, I'd love to hear, you know, some takeaways you have. You have such an incredible career having worked at Time and then CNN and AOL. There's actually a quote in your book that I kind of want to read because you mention a takeaway, essentially. You say, years later, I still tell new recruits at Hint that the number one thing they need to do is make sure their boss and their team are successful. I run into so many people who make the mistake of worrying about how they look and concentrating on their own feelings to the extent that they don't appreciate what's going on around them. Focusing outward on those who depend on you and the rest of the team makes you a valuable person, gets you more responsibility, and ultimately gives you a chance to not just look like, but also be a superstar. I think that's so, so powerful. You know, that's so interesting and such good insight and such a great takeaway. What other takeaways do you have during your work experience at Time or CNN? I think one thing that I think about just to even expand on, on that too, that maybe kind of, kind of shift your brain a little bit into thinking things that, so here I am at Time Magazine and I'm an executive assistant. I'm, you know, doing my time. I'm, I'm like supporting uh, Brooke McMurray. She was awesome, but she was going through her own challenges, personal challenges at the time. And you know, it's interesting because she had a lot of friends that came by, a lot of publishers, very senior level people who would come by. Her husband had actually passed away. 
And um, so there were many people who came by just to check on her. Um, he had actually been at Sports Illustrated and was like super loved guy. And so I had access to this amazing group of people that just being her executive assistant that, you know, when I saw that they were challenged in some way, like they were trying to figure something out, out anything that they needed me to do. She never told me to go do that, but I, I was just, I don't know, just being helpful, just sort of like acting just the way that I normally would things like they were, you know, trying to figure back before so much was digital, like making copies or something like I'd be, they'd be like, Oh God, I got to get a copy of this. I'm like, Oh, just give it to me. I'll run and do it really quick. I'll be right back. Little things like that. People remember. Right. And then the next time they come by, they're using you as an example. And it's funny because years later, there was somebody who worked down the hall from me who I didn't really even know, but years later, he ends up at Amazon and he ends up working in the group that is making the decision on what products to put in the initial selection of products on Amazon. And when he had talked to some people at time and he was trying to figure out his selection that he was gonna be picking uh, in, for, for Amazon, somebody said, do you remember that girl, Kara, who worked for Brooke and she was always super funny and nice and helpful. And he was like, kind of, um, but he said, yeah, like, you know, she used to grab the extra sandwiches from the, from, you know, the pantry and, and feed her the rest of her friends at home. Like she would always like make a joke about it. Like, you know, I'm making $21,000 a year. Of course you guys have to feed me. I mean, how else am I going to survive? I'm going to take the sandwiches home to my roommates because we're starving. <laughs> I'm going to take the sandwiches home and just being really authentic. And the fact that, you know, these, these leaders in the company, like they thought it was great that I wasn't trying to pretend I was something that I wasn't. Right. And so this guy is at Amazon 25 years later, he, he reaches out to me. He said, I don't know if you remember me at time. And I kind of remember him, but not really, but he said, I remember who you were. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if he went to an Ivy league school. Cause you did mention in the book that so many Ivy leaguers, you were the only one almost that didn't go to an Ivy league school. So that explains why everyone was kind of looking at you as you're taking sandwiches back to your apartment. Totally. And he did, but it, but it's funny because maybe during that time I was not sort of, you know, maybe he figured that that was his identity right? That he hung out with the people that, but then 25 years later, he's like, she's running a beverage company. Like she's actually running a company. She's an entrepreneur. She was, you know, according to my friends, funny, cool, whatever, somebody that I would just like enjoy catching up with. And you forget about where, where you went to school or whatever. But during that time, there is a separation because you you identify with certain things, whether it's a school or or gender or whatever. And then it starts to people start to look at what you've done, but what you've also, you know, who you are if if you're helpful. I think kindness and being helpful, not just saying hi every single day, but actually trying to figure out how can I actually help this person achieve what they need to achieve whether it's grabbing copies or whatever, or just, again, not doing something that is so far below you, but something that is just like small and helpful that's not going to take a lot of time. People remember it and you never know where people are going to be or end up. Yeah, it's interesting. And people always remember how you make them feel, right? So it's maybe not even so much about all the things, nice things that you're doing, but the fact that you made them feel really good by helping them in all these different ways, they remembered you. Yeah. And I think, especially when you're doing something like I have no idea, but maybe this guy at Amazon really wanted to be an entrepreneur, right? And suddenly he's watching this person that has become, maybe I can actually help him 
in some way. Um, he actually left Amazon. So, and I'm not sure where he went, but it was starting his company now. No, <laughs> probably. Right. But, but that's the thing. It's like, if you walk into a situation and you, maybe you feel like this isn't my place, like my people aren't here or whatever, you rise above it and you be who you are supposed to be. You be yourself, try and not be grumpy, not feeling judged, all of those things. Instead, just do what you do. In the end, it works because people will remember, even when you looked like oddball out, people will remember how you made them feel and what you were willing to do in order to, to help them. Yeah. You know, in your book, you mentioned how you met your husband, which is a very cute story, by the way. <laughs> um, and you talk about how luck and coincidence and unexpected events play an important role in our lives. Um, and it certainly played a, an important role in how you met your husband. And I'm curious with building hint, what was kind of luck and unexpected that happened that, um, you know, helped you become successful in building hint? So many times, so much it's luck, but I think it's also sort of not, I think not trying to focus too much on, on the end. Right. I think instead just getting up every day and, and maybe even these principles that I talked about earlier, like making progress, be kind, being helpful. I think looking at the other side of the table as to what they need to achieve. I'll give you one example. When we were first starting Hint, I learned pretty quickly that we were going to have a really tough time actually getting our product on the shelf because we were the only one doing unsweetened flavored water as a still water. And so there's this thing called a planogram that most stores have that show that in the beverage aisle, there's juice, there's soda, there's kind of enhanced waters, which is typically back then it used to be vitamin water and some of the flavored waters out there, but, but basically this, this drink that didn't have a, that didn't have any sweeteners in it at all, like hint wasn't there. And so when I would talk to buyers at Safeway and Kroger and some of the others, they'd say, Oh, well, where would you fit in this planogram? And I'd say, there's no one else like us out there. And what I realized is not having competition is actually, you think as a founder, you're a genius, right? (laughs) We're the only ones. No one is doing it. I have to be really quiet. I can't share my idea with anything. No one's going to steal it. (laughs) No one's going to steal it, right? Well, if you're going into a store and they've got a map and they're going to do, that's their job. They're not going to break that map. They can't break that map. And so we learned that we weren't going to get on the shelf. And so there were some places that we were able to get into that had a better, no planogram or a little bit better planogram like Whole Foods, but we couldn't scale the product in the way that we really wanted to scale it unless I could find the consumers that were coming into Whole Foods. And I started really connecting with the consumer to find out, I heard early on, we were getting emails from consumers who were saying, hey, I, I love this drink. It doesn't have any sweeteners in it. It tastes great. And I have diabetes or I just had gastric bypass surgery or I just want to drink more water or I want to lose weight. And I believe that sweeteners are sort of tied to screwing up my metabolism in some way. All these things kind of created this healthy halo. So I started trying to think about, okay, where do I find people that speak to that. And I go to doctor's offices and I drop off some cases or I, you know, try and figure out exactly, you know, where to find those consumers. But I think that, you know, the key thing that I found is, I guess when you're early like that and, you know, you're trying to figure out like, how do you fit in in some way with a product or service or whatever, there's going to be luck, but there's also this persistence that plays in where, you know, unless those consumers are actually coming into the stores and saying, you guys should really have this product, 
I'm just this annoying vendor that's coming in all the time saying, hey, you want some? And it's not going to happen. So we really started pushing the, the consumer to kind of do that work for us. That's amazing. And so I guess we can go through quickly kind of summarizing real quick, you know, your time at Time Magazine and CNN and then AOL, which I know you were there for many years. But really, you know, I'd love to kind of jump to the story of how you came up with the idea for Hint. I'm sure there's many people that know it and I know it too, but, you know, it's a great story and uh, I'd love for you to share it. Yeah. So I had been drinking diet soda for years, not really thinking that there was anything wrong with it. And uh, I was, you mentioned America Online. I had I'd moved from New York out to the Bay Area and I'd been with a little startup that was doing online shopping. And it was a Steve Jobs idea, a little known Steve Jobs idea from Apple, inside of Apple that was incubated there. And then a group of guys moved out of there and started this little startup. Well, one of our investors, I ended up joining them when I moved to San Francisco. And one of our investors was America Online. So America Online acquired us and, uh, you know, really became the place where shopping happened for many years for a lot of different reasons. More than anything, it was, you know, a lot of people called AOL the training wheels for the internet. It was a closed platform. So it was faster. I mean, there's a lot of technical stuff that went on with it, but it was, um, it was exciting to, to be there and, and work there. I was traveling a lot and my family lived in San Francisco. I had young kids at the time. And after seven years, there was a billion dollars in revenue in my group that I ran. I was like, I'm going to leave. And I, you know, had a great run. It was terrific. I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I thought there's a lot of startups in Silicon Valley or, you know, things that I really probably would enjoy more. I think like the key thing that I learned about myself at this point was that I, I like the early, um, the early, I love the build, you know, and for people who are just thinking about being an entrepreneur, there's different stages and, you know, it's, it's like saying you like light blue, but you don't like dark blue. I mean, there's, there's yeah. no wrong. Still blue. You know, yeah. Right. It's still blue, you know, but you're still, but there's, there's different stages. And I really love that. I love the really early. And, uh, and so I thought, how do I get back to the really early? I was interviewing, I was, um, talking to different roles. Everybody kept asking me to kind of do what I had done at AOL. And that's really tough when you're going to break something that they've already built and then redo it. I've still to this day, never done that. Like I've never, it's people have asked, you know, what's something that you've never done. Like I've never done a, you know, restarted something, not to say that I couldn't, or I wouldn't, I just have never done that. I've really created from the beginning and, and scaled and grown company. But, um, but anyway, so while I was, home sort of thinking about this. I was also had young kids. I had three kids at the time. You had three kids in three years. Yeah. Right? It was, See, that's it, crazy. Your body yeah. went through a lot. Basically. It was nuts. Yeah. And <laughs> I was gaining weight with each of these pregnancies. I, I loved being a mom, but I also really kind of wanted to do more than mommy and me classes. Like for me, I just, I, I missed the, I missed the building of the company and, and that aspect of it. So anyway, I, I, I was thinking about it, but I was also thinking about how do I feed my kids like really great food, buy great diapers. You know, I was typical mom. And while I was looking at trying to figure out what I feed my kids, that's when I looked down at my Diet Coke one day and it was truly an epiphany because you were having a lot of these every day. Like how many cans of Diet Coke were you having every day? I mean, 10 to 12 a That's day. Crazy. That's crazy. So much. You talk to anybody who was in college with me, I still run into them all the time where they're like, you'd be bored. And then you'd say, hey, do you want to go to Circle K? And we'd go up to Circle K and I'd buy, you know, the super big gulp version of it from Circle K. Sometimes they drink the whole thing. Sometimes they wouldn't. But it was like, it was, it was more of a pattern right? It was like getting a cup of coffee, right? It was just, you know, you just go just for the, you know, it's a routine that 
that I was in. And so that's, that was the life I was living. Never did I think that diet Coke was, or diet Pepsi or diet in general was bad for me. My mom was a tab drinker. And so I, I wouldn't drink tab because who wants to drink what their mom's drinking, right? Like, it's like, I mean, you know, that, that was me back in, in high school. So, you know, it's, I was an early adopter to, to diet Coke. I totally fell into it, but never really thought that some of the health issues that I had, that I was trying to change, including I had gained so much weight and I couldn't lose it. I developed really bad acne that I never tied to these diet sweeteners. And so when I finally just decided because it had too many ingredients in it, I would put it, I would put the diet Coke to the side. That's when I was shocked after two and a half weeks, my skin totally cleared up and I lost all this weight. I lost over 20 pounds in two and a half weeks, which was wow, that's crazy. Nuts, right? And that's when I started doing all this research around, you know, these diet sweeteners. And, and again, I didn't even think about it. Like I'm doing it for myself. I'm doing it for my family. I didn't think this is it. We're going to go start a company. I've worked for enough entrepreneurs. Now I'm going to start my own thing. I instead started thinking, okay, well, this is great, but that means I have to drink plain water. And that that's a chore. I don't like drinking plain water. So my solve for that was slicing up fruit in my kitchen. And so people would come over, kids would come over to the house to have play dates. And I'd say, okay, you can have raspberries or strawberries in your water. And they're like, strawberries. And, and I'm like, okay, great. So I put it in there and then I'm like, I'm spending a fortune on buying fruit. And it's kind of a hassle because of course I didn't want I wanted pesticide free fruit. I didn't, you know, like I wanted, I was super into this whole health thing now that I'm, I'm home. But, and so then the next step was I went to a store one day because I said, it'd be so much better if it was in a bottle, like that I could just buy it and not have to buy all the fruit. And I was shocked when I saw that nothing like hint was on the shelf at the store, Whole Foods that it had just opened that appeared to me to be where it would be, if anywhere. Of course, I looked at Safeway and Costco and all the rest of them, but I was really, really shocked that this wasn't there. And I thought, you know, while I'm looking for a job, maybe I can just get a product on the shelf at Whole Foods. Then I won't feel like this whole extended maternity leave that I've been taking for the last few years was a total waste because I was curious how many other people had thought the same thing as me and my short amount of conversations that I would have with people. Look, when you lose this much weight and you go through this dramatic change, people are like, wait, what did you do? Right. I mean, and, and so then I would go through my story and they'd say, really? I never thought diet soda was bad. And so you know, that was what I, what I was going through. But again, something I talk about in the book is, you know, sometimes if you worry too much about the end, I mean, even when people said to me, that's so cool that you started a company I'd say, who, who are you talking to? Seriously? Like, I mean, and they'd say, did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? And I'm like, listen, don't get too excited. I'm putting, I'm creating a product and I'm getting it on the shelf right now. So don't scare me was saying that I'm, you know, going to go be Steve Case or going to go be Ted Turner or whatever. I mean, that for me seemed really daunting. Instead, I just needed to figure out how do I wake up tomorrow and accomplish something? And some days I didn't, some days I'd go backwards, but instead I'd say, okay, well, two days from now, I need to accomplish a little bit more, or I need to just take a break and I need to just go full throttle next week. And I know that's going to happen. And that was the way that I thought about it. And it wasn't until I really started seeing, you know, cases coming off the shelf that I said, oh, I, I've got to get my LLC and start my company. And now I guess I am an entrepreneur and trademark my company, all those kind of things. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 
Have you ever experienced lost sales due to downtime caused by a corrupt CSV, malicious attack, or rogue third-party app? Even if it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. That's why brands like Pier 1 Import, Lord & Taylor, Hasbro, and Staples use Rewind to keep their store protected. Rewind gives you peace of mind, protects your data, and saves you time and money by easily restoring your data, automatically backing up and keeping a record of every change you make. Get a 30-day free trial with Rewind today by going to rewind.io slash stairway to CEO. That's R-E-W-I-N-D dot I-O slash stairway to CEO. Spring is in the air, which means summer will be here in no time. But is your patio or backyard ready for action? With Outer, you can get your outdoor space decked out with the best looking sustainable sofas, chairs, coffee tables, eco-friendly rugs, and don't forget their celebrity favorite, bug shield blanket to keep those mosquitoes away. Want to check it out for yourself? Browse over a thousand outer customers' backyards online and visit a neighborhood showroom in your own neighborhood to experience outer products in person before you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture purchases with the promo code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. There's so many hurdles I think aspiring entrepreneurs have kind of in their heads about taking that leap into entrepreneurship. And it sounds like one of the biggest ones is that they probably assume, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to fill the shoes of a Ted Turner, right? <laughs> like they're kind of comparing themselves with this way long end goal instead of kind of baby steps, focusing on those smaller steps. What other challenges do you think that entrepreneurs face in, in trying to build a business from zero? I think especially today, there's this um, allure that that is, you know, they're very sexy, like entrepreneur, you know, I'm going to be just like Elon Musk and, you know, and launch rockets and uh, it's, it's all good. I mean, nobody really thinks about, you know, building a team and raising money and, you know, maintaining your product, hire, having great customer service and, you know, having a connection with the consumer, all those things I think are, are really critical. I think that the other piece is, is that it's, it can be really lonely being an entrepreneur because, you know, you're trying to sit here and bring in people into your company too. And of course, they don't want to hear about your failures, right? They don't want to hear, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to raise the money or not, but you should do your job and come work for me. And I've never had experience in this and doing what I'm doing, but it's going to be all good. I mean, that's not. It's terrifying. It's like, oh yeah, I've got to go raise millions of dollars right now for this business to get to the next level. I have no idea if I can pull this off, but I can't tell anybody or talk to anybody about it because I'm supposed to be this hero that can just do it overnight, make it happen, make everything happen. It's a lot of pressure and it's very lonely at the time. And people don't see that or talk about it. And frankly, I mean, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write the story because people would you know, say to me over the years, you're so authentic. Like, I'm like, no, I just say it as it is. I mean, like it, I I've had a lot of good stuff happen. I've had some, you know, not so good. And I think that, you know, that's life, right? That's how you learn. You know, that's how you, you make mistakes and, you know, you get better. Um, again, it's, it's sort of your journey. I'm not saying that it happens to everybody, 
But I think that there's a lot of things that happen that if, if you hear those stories, that it can help you to get over the fence, get over your own blocks, you know, figure out a way to, to continue moving forward. Cause that's the most important aspect that I've seen. And even people that, you know, investors of ours that I know pretty well, I mean, John Legend is one of our investors. And when he read the book early on, I mean, he, he said, I kept thinking, okay, here's where the company shuts down. Here's where the company shuts down. And then he was like, oh, wait, I think I'd know about that at that point, if it was getting this close. So it's not something that you bring up with everybody. You certainly don't bring it up with your family either. Cause you know, your family is already stressed out that you're, you could be doing a lot of other things, but you're not in their mind. Uh, in my case, like leaving a tech job, you know, and being marketable, all of a sudden I'm like starting a beverage company. <laughs> you cashed out at AOL. You've got this, you're like this high profile person. Every tech company is trying to recruit you and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do a water business. Yeah. And I'm loading pieces into my grand Cherokee and, you know, fighting with my husband because like, he's like, there's certain weight restrictions for in your grand Cherokee. You're going to bottom out at the bottom of the hill in San Francisco. If you have too much weight in your car and you know, these are like conversations that we would have. And I'd be like, no, it's not. I can put one more case in there. They want the extra case, but who do you tell those stories to? right? You're not going to call your girlfriend. Oh, sorry. I was like fighting with him because he was telling me I can have one less case in the car. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the amount of times I've bored my poor friends to death with like small stories of entrepreneurship. <laughs> like... Right? No, I mean, you get it. And, but yet when you're, when you're trying to start your company or you're in it, I mean, the number of people who've, you know, read some of these stories from the book, they're not beverage entrepreneurs, but they read them and they're like, oh my God, I totally get it. Like, it's just, I have my own story like that. So, right. Sometimes it's a little easier. Sometimes it's even worse of a situation, but it's misery of company in some ways. So what has fundraising been like and, and what kind of challenges, obviously you faced lots of challenges in building your business, but what has fundraising been like and what advice do you have for founders looking to fundraise? How do you choose the right ones? Yeah. I mean, I think that the key thing is finding somebody that really has people invest not only in the company and the product, that's like kind of a given, but they also invest in you. And, and so I think that the key thing is finding people that, you know, really believe in you. And I think that, that when you start to get people into your company that don't, that are basically trying to, you know, flip it fast or the venture firm down the street, like invested in this, so they think they should too, but you know, they're just not, they're not even drinking your product, right? They don't really, you know, <laughs> yeah, like women entrepreneur, women CEOs, like, oh, Okay. I guess that's what people do. Sometimes they invest in diversity, but that's <laughs> not, you know, that's not sort of our deal. Right. Just walk out of the meeting. Walk out of the meeting. I mean, you know, just say, you know what, like there are rivers that run right next to each other. <laughs> this one isn't crossing anywhere near me. I mean, you have to really start to, you know, know your walk away. And I think that that's the thing. And, you know, or, like when there's tough situations too, you have to stand up for yourself, right? Because I think that that's the most important thing. I mean, the, the number of regrets that I've heard from founders, you know, when things do go wrong is that they didn't stand up for themselves and they didn't try and figure out really what was best, not only first and foremost for the shareholders and for the company, but also, you know, really for themselves too like trying to make sure that they're, they're doing something that they can live with. Right. And I think that's the thing that, that so many people need to remember. And, and I think too, that, I mean, I touched on this as well about understanding what you really enjoy. I think that there are many founders that I've talked to who know early on that they don't really enjoy running the company. They still want to be really involved in the company but, you know, they would rather go to founder status or chairman level. But, you know, keeping the heart and soul of the company in, I think is really, it is, you know, it's critical. There are many people who are recruited into a company 
or find a company and decide that they really want to be there because of the belief system that it's, is in place. And, and again, a great product or a great service, but also belief system. And I think that when you remove that belief system, you and I were talking earlier about Silicon Valley. I've talked to many people, many of who are investors in our company as well, that really love investing in founder-led companies. And I think that, you know, Silicon Valley has, has learned their lessons over the years and what happens to a company. And oftentimes they just lose their direction. And there's no set time that that happens. But, you know, when you're a founder, the last thing you want to do is have your dream implode. There's different issues. If you do something that is illegal or whatever, you sort of have to deal with it as a company. But I think overall, you know, maybe you don't think that they're, that they, you know, enjoy running a PL or, or, or they don't really, maybe they're an introvert and they, you know, don't really want to um, manage people or whatever. You just add people in that, that to do those things. And, you know, you could add president in, you could add, you know, there's no sort of set structure as to, you know, what roles actually do within a company either. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, you've got people who are doing being, you know, chief people officers and they're, they're more in charge of recruitment than actually figuring out 401k programs, whatever it is, right? Like, I think the sky's the limit as to how you figure that stuff out, but I think it's just important. And then I think also one of the things that I think is really key that I was just talking to an entrepreneur about when you're setting up your company, I spoke about this earlier, the LLC things like you set up your own company, you go and hire an attorney really to set up your company, right? Versus actually the founder. Maybe there's like a couple of paragraphs about, you know, the founder and the CEO in there, but having a different lawyer who, who is actually looking out for you and, you know, is really, really key because all you're trying to figure out is how do you set up the company? Are you talking about, so, cause we were talking about, I think before, I'm a little confused. You talked about before kind of how this removing founders concepts in Silicon Valley, you know, is, isn't always a great thing. And now, and so are you talking about this when you're setting up your company with the lawyer to, okay, yeah, sorry, I jumped around a little bit, but it's, it's a, I think that there's a few things that I've, that I've learned or that I've seen with founders. So, you know, number one is sort of understanding what, what, you want to be doing. And sometimes you, sometimes you just want to set the company up and you want to see it getting traction, but maybe there's a place at some point down the road where you sit there and say, I hate doing PL, I hate doing managing people, whatever that is, hire a president in, hire, you know, somebody else to do, to do that. Maybe you just decide you want to go to founder status and you don't want to be the CEO. That's okay. Right. But having somebody but picking the right financial people that aren't going to make those decisions for you, I think are, is, is super, super key. And then how do you protect yourself from that as you start to raise more and more capital? Because then the founder is getting more and more diluted, right, from an equity perspective. And so does that, that can potentially shift, basically. That can shift. And there's lots of ways around that, too, that having your own attorney that is really smart about this stuff, like maybe you have founder stock that even if you don't have as many seats on the board, you've got the ability to, you know, be able to do stuff because based on um, the amount of stock. So again, I think there's so many situations early on where you don't think about what could happen um, down the road that you just need a great attorney that is going to think about you and is versus actually, you know, having a document that is, you know, you're an afterthought in there um, that, you're, that, you know, it's like, it's a marriage, right? And it's not, unless there's something in the document that actually says that here's what's going to happen if it all goes bad, you're like, oh, but it never will. Right. Of course. Cause you're like in the dating phase, of course, when you're like fundraising and you're just as a founder, 
you know, you're just excited to get the funding and get your business to the next level. I mean, I certainly have had my share of, you know, an investor in the pot that is not great, right? <laughs> I think it's hard to avoid because you just don't see it sometimes early on, but it is really important, I think, to dig as deep as you can to vet the right investors for your for your team. That's the key thing, you know, that that I've talked to founders about is that it's like once you start getting more and more capital into the company, it's hard to go back and talk about me and what your protections are, right? You're getting diluted. Maybe you're getting diluted the same as everybody else, but at the end of the day, you know, how do you protect against that? I guess is is the key thing that I think founders need to look at that and and I think more and more I'm seeing that you don't have the exact same attorney um, do your company and do you, right? You have somebody else who's sitting here saying, you know, sitting on the opposite side. And most, most law firms won't actually tell you that. Everything, everything's great. We'll just have, you know, and in the, in the paperwork, you sign this little thing that, you know, is a release that says, you know, you're... Basically, if you get into a situation where you're fired or, you know, maybe you're in a fight with your co-founder or, you know, lots of different things could happen in the end, you know, the lawyer that you hire is for the company. And so you're, and so you're sitting there saying, well, what about me? Like, how did this all happen? And why would you, and you don't even know to think that way in the early days because you're just like the the company is me the, I'm the company you know it's like how can anything go wrong I'm the f- owner of this business and before you have lots of sales before you have lots of rounds you know it's so key so I I was just talking to a founder about this the other day that's like on her C round and she doesn't have an employment agreement at all and I was like wow. Like, I mean, that's just, you know, and that, that's how this stuff happens. Right. And, you know, you see it over and over again. And I mean, I think somebody was telling me the story that, and I've got to look it up to find out what the history is on this, but like Hewlett Packard, I mean, there was a huge case about, you know, the founder of Hewlett Packard and, and it was, it was kind of along those lines where here's his company. He's so tied to, to it yet there was, there was nobody sort of looking out for him. And, you know, and again, in those early days, you're not taking a salary, you're like sweating, trying to get this thing set up. And then, you know, once a company gets successful and big enough, then it's like, okay, we're canceling you now. Right. It's like designers. It reminds me of the documentary Halston. You know, it happens all the time in the fashion industry. You in the name and the company is called is their name, you know, well, see, I've heard this about, actually, I can't confirm it, but somebody was telling me about, well, Chanel and, and also uh, Donna Karen and people that you sort of lose track of the story, but it happens over and over again. And I think it happens probably more to women, but it happens to men too. And, you know, and there's no sort of specific cause for any of it. It's just kind of like, you know, it boils down to wrong capital. Or possibly like wrong culture, team, whatever, you know, skills um, to be able to sort of get a company to a certain level or whatever they haven't managed over, over time. Do you think an interesting way to filter for the right investors to is to ask them how they feel about removing founders? And if they've done it before, if they, how they feel about it, just as a way to kind of filter for where their mindset is on that topic. I think that's key. I think sadly, most of them would say. The lie, right? (laughs) We're founder friendly. Here, sign here. Yeah. We have lots of founders in our portfolio. Like we invested when they were founders. We don't have them anymore, but I mean, you know, it's hard. It's hard for them to, to actually it's tough for them to actually own it. Right. And I think, you know, sadly, many of the, you know, private equity or venture, and sometimes they're individual investors too, they haven't operated companies. They haven't been founders. I mean, I love the ones that have actually been founders and have worked closely with founders. I mean, 
he's an angel investor. He's not a private equity person, but one of our first investors in our company is this guy, Jeff Ralston, who runs Y Combinator. And, you know, Jeff's invested in over a thousand companies. He was a founder of a company called 411 that was, um, that was acquired by Yahoo. And he ran product for Yahoo for, for days. And, and Jeff is an investor. He invests in lots of companies, but Jeff, he knows, like, he loves founders, right? Like, he loves the spirit, the craziness of that. He, you know, he's seen a lot. He's met, I mean, he's invested in DoorDash, Airbnb. Like, he's, you know, he's seen ones that haven't gone so well here, have totally scaled, have gone public, have failed, you know, lots of different things. And, but I think that if you find people that are not so found, founder friendly, that are sort of making moves, like, remember that. Right. And I think that goes for the team, too. If you have part members of a, you know, if you have a CFO, for example, that is or, you know, another member of the C-suite team that has turned. I mean, that's that's been the case in many, many startups um, that I've seen, too, where it's like one day, you know, the person that you hired is is totally, you know, on board. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're sort of working behind your back with, with these private equity people. And I think like that is, it's more common than not. And I mean, all I can say is if you're thinking of hiring somebody that was on that side of the table, like don't do it. I mean, it's like, it's like as a girlfriend of mine was saying, it's like somebody who's been married three times, like right. wonder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. Three strikes, like, you're out. Yeah, like it's just maybe once you know it wasn't right. the right, but twice you gotta start asking like the questions what happened here right and then three times it's just a red flag it's just like red flag. lesson you hasn't gotta, been learned right and you gotta have a big reason as to you know why you did what you did and i think it's it's like you know patterns repeat themselves i guess is what i'm saying and and when you get away with something you're gonna do it again and it's like life lessons I think more than anything, try and do what you can and, and figure out how to move forward in some way. And then also know that when you're taking investors in, I mean, your job is to the investors, you know, the shareholders, right? It's it. I mean, it's really like, and so it can be, it can feel very personal to you. It can feel, but at the end of the day, it all doesn't matter. And it like, it, again, it's like one thing if it's mom and dad are putting, I mean, they're investors too, but it's like when you get more investors in, I mean, you gotta remember like that's that if you want to scale a company, you probably do need to have investors in, but your job is to the investors. Yep. It, it's funny. Cause so many people I think enter or have this thought of entrepreneurship as, Oh, I don't have to work for anybody else. I work for myself. Right. But actually as you grow the business, not only are you working for your team, you know, you have to motivate them. You're working for your customers, but you're really working for your shareholders, which are your investors. You are. And legally you're working for your shareholders. Yes. And so it's your like, job. that's the other thing. So if you're, you know, if you're, uh, you're a, a, private equity firm. And even if, you know, you own the majority of the company and you're sitting in a board seat and you're making decisions about the company that is in the best interest of you and not in the best interest of all shareholders, it doesn't matter if they're a minority shareholder, like you, you can't do that. And, you know, and, and I think so many people forget about that. Like you could have somebody that is owns more board seats who's less than 51%, but even if they're 51%, like you cannot legally, you cannot sit there and like say, I'm gonna do whatever I want because I own 51% of the company because minority shareholders in California and in Delaware, like they have rights and you just can't do that. So I think it's like, it's, and sometimes you have to remind people who behave badly you know, that is like not okay. And so I think really understanding, again, it might even be a different lawyer than the one that drew up your contract for putting, you know, making you guys an LLC or an S corp or whatever, you get somebody who really understands corporate governance, you know, and it's important. So 
What is next for Hint? I'm here enjoying my watermelon watermelon flavor. It's my favorite one. I've got blackberry as a backup, but thank you so much for sending this stuff over. It's delicious. I'm a big fan of your brand. So what's next for Hint and you? And what kind of final advice do you have for entrepreneurs tuning in? Yeah, I think the key thing is enjoy what you're doing and like, and do something that you think has purpose, right? That is going to better the world in some way. And I think too many people are focused on, on making a buck and flipping a company quickly. I think if you actually lead with a concept, a company that is actually going to solve a problem um, that you think will actually change people in some way for the better, then the money will come. And I think just always be thinking that if that's, if that's what your purpose is in starting a company, that's the right purpose. If you're, you know, if otherwise, if you don't enjoy it, maybe you want to just come up with, maybe you just want to do an idea incubator and get somebody else to kind of run it. You know, don't, don't go in because it's, there's ways, your ways to make money. You know, if you love what you're doing and you love the, the, uh, the grind, the, the, uh, sometimes tenacious environment that you, that you have to, you know, put yourself into all of those things. Definitely takes a lot of resiliency, which you clearly have and wrote an entire book about. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Really enjoyed hearing your story. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.